Living Stones is a weekly conversation about living a truly Catholic life. Deacon Harold Burke Sivers and Ken Hellenius help you deepen your relationship with Christ and His Church, discussing practical ways to grow in faith, participate more fully in the liturgy, and practice charity towards all. Hello and welcome to Living Stones. I am your co-host, Ken Hellenius, sitting in the cold studios in South Bend, Indiana, but across from me in the virtual studios in beautiful Portland, Oregon, is my brother from another mother, as he so kindly refers to me often, the man who has the world's largest collection of pop-tops, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Hello, Deacon. (laughs) How you doing, Ken? Between that and my 3,600 books on theology and philosophy of my library, I just... I have no more room left in my house, Ken. You've got so much to pass on to your children. I mean, that's the, the thing. I wonder, you know, they, they often say, I, my dad used to always take all the pop tops off of cans when we would we would finish drinking them. And I think he sent them somewhere. Like it used to be a thing where you'd send and you'd get a certain amount of time for like, um, was it kidney dialysis or something like this? And I, I don't know if this is the sort of thing that was just my dad being crazy or if it was a real thing or me. I don't know. I think right. people actually collect that stuff. I think there are people that really collect collect bottles. Yeah. When I think of pop tops, I always think of uh, Jimmy Buffett's song Margaritaville. Yeah. And how he go. cut his heel by stepping on a pop top. No wait, who was all... it? It was um, Bert from Sesame Street. Didn't he collect? Wasn't that Bert from Sesame uh, uh, Street? Bottle caps. I think so. Yeah, perhaps. I'm trying to remember, man. I don't remember. I think I think it I was. Though. I think he had a collection of that, and Ernie used to make. Maybe fun that's of why he couldn't get himself a lady friend because he was. <laughs> Now here we are speculating on the actual, <laughs> on the relationships on Sesame Street. I don't know. <laughs> and we just lost the Sesame Street ad, ad money. <laughs> Darn. <laughs> oh, well. How are you this fine day, Deacon? I'm um, doing well. Doing well, Ken. You know, um, uh, was um, uh, unfortunately on the road for uh, Valentine's Day. So hopefully, ho- hopefully you, I have to make it up to my wife. Hopefully you and Julie had a wonderful Valentine's Day. Well, you know, Julie and I don't celebrate Valentine's Day. We actually do observe the Feast of Saints Cyril and Methodius, uh, yes. which is far less yes. romantic, it turns out. <laughs> Although, uh, <laughs> no, um, actually, it's, it's, I mean, I say that in joking and all that. Yes, we do, of course, have a lovely meal together. and, and uh, But um, we had the wonderful opportunity in Rome to visit the first place where Cyril and Methodius were buried is in Rome in the Basilica of San Clemente, uh, near uh, the uh, Lateran Basilica. San Clemente is a a parish that's administered by the Irish Dominicans, and Cyril and Methodius were buried underneath the basilica. And it's a place of great um, devotion and pilgrimage, even to this day, uh, for for a lot of, um, you know, the Slavic peoples. I mean, we think of St. Cyril as creating an alphabet so that they could write the gospel in a way that could be understood in in the language of the the people to whom they were sent to preach the gospel. So Cyril and Methodius, who also share the feast day of uh, February 14th, but unfortunately in most of the West, People don't even aren't even aware of that, but uh, yeah. Uh, so that's our romantic celebration on the fourteenth of February is Cyril and Methodius. Wow, Ken, you, you sly <laughs> devil, you! <laughs> You're so creative, I tell you. <laughs> You're awesome, yeah, I, man. I often think about the fact that we call it the Cyrillic alphabet, and I really feel bad for Methodius. It's yeah. like, you know, he had a hand in this too. Why don't we call it the Methodic 
alphabet or something <laughs> like that. But nope, Cyril gets all the glory. Well, Deacon, we had a couple weeks ago the very first appearance of uh, a friend of the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture, where I work. Father John Paul Kimes joined us uh, on the show. We chatted all about the Maronite Church and uh, some of the Eastern churches, and and uh, it was a delightful conversation. And we asked him, and he agreed to come back on the show. And so, because there's a whole other aspect to his life that we didn't get to, and that is uh, uh, he, for many years, worked uh, in the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in Rome uh, because he studied canon law and is a canon lawyer. And we thought, well, gosh, we need to know a little bit more about that because that sounds like the sort of awesome, fascinating thing that every layperson should know more about. Uh, and even though he rolled his eyes when we said that, uh, Father John Paul Kimes kindly agreed to come back on the show and join us once again. So I'd like to reintroduce friend of the show, Father John Paul Kimes. Hi, Father. Hi, hi Ken. How are you? Hey, Father. Very well. Welcome Deacon, back. Deacon, it's good to be back. Thanks again for this for the invitation. I guess I didn't scare the listeners away last time, so uh, the, the invitation <laughs> stuck. I got to come back again. It's a pleasure although I, to Although I will say that this is probably Probably the only time that anyone has said that canon law is an interesting subject, and I want to know more about that. <laughs> Many of my students have never had that feeling, I'm afraid. <laughs> no, 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 no. For most of us, we are. This is a case where we are truly lay people in in terms of we have no understanding. We maybe have heard about can you know somebody mentioned canon law. We've heard about you know, penalties, all these sorts of things. We hear about excommunication. We hear about maybe censure. I mean, and these are terms that maybe get bandied about, but nobody has a clue what they mean. Yeah, they, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of terminology in canon law that gets that gets thrown around, um, even by canon, by, even by canon lawyers, let alone by people that have never picked up uh, the code of canon law. We'll talk about right. the code too. Right. They've never picked up, you know, where all this canon law is found. There are lots of terminology that's thrown around that. Um, Correctly, incorrectly, but they're, they're words that we hear as Catholics in particular often uh, in our experience in the church, and we really don't know what they mean. Um, so the I when I was in a parish, I would always tell my parishioners, I said, if I was doing my job as a pastor, then you never needed to come to me as a canon lawyer. Because the canon, canon law is like the law in any society, in any organization. All organizations and societies need law to create structure, but it tends, to, on the most part, beyond defining rights and obligations for the different people uh, in the Catholic Church, it also, uh, if you will, establishes kind of a border, a kind of a fence. Okay. Um, and as long as you stay inside the fence... Everything is fine. You never have to know canon law exists because you're doing everything the way it needs to be done. Your pastor's doing everything the way it needs to be done. Everybody's working to get to heaven, uh, you know, and that God's grace is going is going to get us there. Uh, and then you don't need to worry about canon law because it doesn't actually. I mean, it impacts your life, but not in a way that you feel until something somewhere has gone wrong. Okay. Um, much like if you're a law-abiding citizen, you don't need exactly. to be worried when the police if the, drives by. If the policeman <laughs> drives by and you're a law-abiding citizen and you have your seatbelt uh, on and you're you know you're driving at the speed limit, you have nothing to worry about. <laughs> 
and yet canon law exists and there are lawyers and people and there are lawyers who have full-time jobs there are and there are there are a number of them most people's experience of canon law i say the most concrete most common concrete experience of canon law comes around marriage yeah so either in the preparation for the celebration of the sacrament of marriage or as i said earlier when something goes wrong and things at the you know a couple decides to split and then one of the parties or both seek the declaration of the nullity of the marriage from a tribunal in their local diocese so every diocese is supposed to have its own tribunal and a tribunal is like a, a court? tribunal is a court okay uh and it's supposed so every diocese has a guy, or in some cases, uh, a woman, who is the judicial vicar. Judicial vicars tend to be priests. The law prefers the, the office of judicial vicar. So he is the chief legal officer okay. of the diocese. So, But in regards to church law, not in regards to civil law. And his job is to be sure that the law, the church law, is applied in that diocese. And there's another figure called the promoter of justice. The promoter of justice law is to be sure that the law is applied equitably and appropriately. So the judicial vicar is in charge of seeing that procedures are followed, that everything is done the right way. The promoter of justice is just about that, the promotion of justice. So the equity and the just application of the law in the diocese. Now, as I said, most people are uh, come into contact with canon law around the celebration of marriage. So if uh, some, somebody needs a dispensation to celebrate a marriage inside the Catholic Church, well, that would be – that's an issue in canon law because canon law tells us what are the conditions that are necessary for a man and a woman to get married in a Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, the, if some of those conditions aren't there – um, some there can be what's called a dispensation, so you can be given a pass, if you will, on a particular thing, and then others you can't get a dispensation for. So that means that those two people, that man and the woman, can't get cannot get married in the Catholic Church at this time until some conditions change. Now there there are lots and lots of different conditions. I don't want to bore right, people with right. a, a lesson on marriage law, but that's normally where most people would come into contact with with canon law. Yeah. When I got married, my my wife not being Catholic, I had to seek a request, a dispensation. And um, part of that was that I was saying, I am fully aware of my responsibilities as a Catholic in marrying, you know, my beloved bride to be. Um, So and in that sense, saying, I know that I can't use this as an excuse going forward. Exactly. And it's and it's a way to guarantee just that, because again, to to stick with with marriage and in the celebration of every marriage, what you want are two fully informed adults who are uh, who understand the decision that they're making, and who understand all of the implications of their exchange of consent. When 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 the husband you know, and looks at his wife and says, I do, and she looks at him and says, I do, are those two, is that man and that woman, are they, do they understand what they're doing? So when, you know, you married your lovely bride and she was not Catholic and the, and the church says, okay, Ken, you understand that when you get married in this situation, you understand everything this entails, particularly, you know, in if there are going to be children that are born from the marriage, your responsibility as the Catholic party to ensure, to do everything you can to ensure that your children are raised Catholic. Again, it's just that. It's so that you can't come back and say, well, nobody ever told me. Right. There's no right. get out of jail free card here. <laughs> a, you knew what you were doing. Right. I have a, a, a second question. But first, so I'm preparing a couple of couples for marriage right now. And, and so when things go bad on the other end, <laughs> the three sure. things the church looks at, 
uh, is consent, form, and capacity, right? Those exactly. are three things the church yeah. looks at. So, but on the day of the wedding, right? So it's not like what happened after the wedding. Exactly. It's exactly. on the day. I think people get confused about that. So you yeah. just go through quickly through what consent, sure. form, and capacity. What does the church looks at when it looks at see whether there was a valid marriage that actually took yeah. place? If you'll allow me, Deacon, just to give a, a brief uh, response to one of the, that first concern you said. Most people think that they, when something goes wrong on the on the on the on the back end of a marriage, so to speak, they think that that's what the church looks at. What went wrong there? I said no. What the church looks at is at the moment of the actual exchange of vows. So at the moment of the wedding, there are two things that could cause a marriage to be null in simple categories. One, something that needed to be present was not. And number two is something that should not have been present was. And this goes straight to those three categories you talked about, Deacon. So the first, of course, is consent. So what does that mean? So when we say, I consent to something, yes, I, I want to do this. I want this to happen. But that has to be an informed consent. That means you, you the, the idea that the church has is that the, uh, a man and woman understand the church's teaching of marriage. And that puts a tremendous responsibility not only on the couple in their preparation, but on the parts of the church to transmit appropriately and properly the fullness, the richness of the teaching of marriage. And there's a lot there. And, you know, Deacon, you know, in your, in your preparation of, of couples for, you know, celebrate the sacrament of marriage, it's not that, you know, that's a heavy lift. That <laughs> is not easy work because there are a lot of factors in our society that have penetrated our common understanding of marriage. And as Catholics, we have to push back against a lot of what we see in the larger society regarding marriage. Marriage is not oh, well, this feels, you know, I love him right now, or, you know, she's she's the one for me today. We'll see about tomorrow. No, we can't do that. This is, you know, it's not a here and now only kind of thing. This is, you know, I we're in this for the long haul, for good or for ill, sickness and health, all of those things. You know, my consent is a consent to marry the man or the woman standing in front of me for all the days of my life. And all that that means, that means I, I go into this with an informed consent, understanding everything that was there. And Deacon, you mentioned the other two categories. I'm sorry you wanted to look form at. Form and capacity. Yeah. So form is the easiest one. It just, it literally is what it sounds like. So that the, the wedding is celebrated in the way, the form that's supposed to be. For, so for a Catholic, uh, that requires what's called sacred form. So some religious content to it. So, you know, there is the possibility for a Catholic who's marrying a non-Catholic to receive what's called a dispensation of form. So you don't actually have to be married in a Catholic church in the Latin church uh, by a deacon or a priest and all the Eastern Catholic churches, like we talked about last time, the Eastern Catholic churches, deacons can't marry because mm-hmm. the marriage perform- includes a blessing and deacons in the Eastern Catholic world can't bless. So in, for Eastern Catholics, they have to be married in sacred form, which is a liturgical rite with the blessing of the, so the exchange of consent and the blessing of a priest. And in the Latin church and the majority, it can be a deacon and a priest who witness right. the exchange of consent. So they're different. So form means a different thing depending on what 
kind of Catholic you are, what flavor of Catholicism you, you belong to. And so then capacity, my ability, again, to understand what it is, and do, do I have the capacity to marriage? So capacity to marriage can mean a, a couple different things. Capacity is not only the, the, the mental capacity to understand, am I kapax in, in, the, in the genuine Latin sense of the term? Am I capable of doing this? That is, do I not have a former, do I not have a previous bond of marriage? If I've previously been married, then I am not kapax. I'm not capable of being married in the Catholic Church until there is a resolution of that previous bond, for example. So those are that's kind of a, a summary of those of those three categories. I hope that well, yeah. Helps so out so a prenuptial agreement wouldn't work for a Catholic. Well, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of debate in the canonical world about prenuptial agreements. Some would say that it shows a misunderstanding of the Catholic teaching of the sacrament of marriage and having that kind of parachute, if you will, says that you're not really, you don't really understand that the commitment is a lifelong commitment. Um, and there are other canonists that wouldn't, I don't, there's not really an, a, a single official stance on a prenups, but I think the better response for a Catholic is let's do a little more more marriage preparation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. let's, you know, let's get beyond the fact. I mean, there are, there are legitimate, we have to understand too, there are legitimate concerns in today's world, whether they're financial concerns or other things like that, that could make a prenup, you know, some potential, there, should, there could be some benefit to it. But from a theological perspective and from a pastoral perspective, the best response is, if you still want a prenup, then we need to do more marriage prep because I need to help, we need to understand each other better. One other little piece in here, because Sometimes Catholics get into really myopic battles over this over this piece here about divorce. Now, yeah. does canon law say that you have to have the bishop's permission in order to get a divorce? <laughs> uh, it, it, no. <laughs> so you know what the church's history and you know lived experience of marriage is so rich, Deacon, that the church you know foresees the foresees the fact the canon law foresees the fact that. Not every day in a marriage is going to be full of sunshine and roses, and that those days could grow into years. And there's what's called a separation of the parties while the bond remains. So the law foresees that it could be the case that a couple has whatever, has, there's something going on within that dynamic that it's better for the two parties to live apart. But that separation is not a divorce, they're still married. They're just not living together at this moment. And that's, you know, so there's there's a richness in, in the church's experience that goes beyond kind of the black and white lines of marriage and divorce, or whatever. They're, they're, the, the church has a lot more instruments, again, that are fruit of its of its uh, 2,000 years of, of, of lived, lived human experience, experience mm-hmm. that unfortunately um, we don't tend to exercise because we live in a world right now where we want, you know, clear responses to difficult questions. And, and the church's lived experience is that sometimes a little bit of time away is better than a knee-jerk quick response, which today in today in the, in the context of marriage is a divorce. Um, I know there are those canonists out there that make the argument about, you know, they have to seek, you know, you have to seek the counsel of the bishop and then you have to, the bishop has to say that the marriage isn't reconcilable and then you can get a divorce. The, the bishop is never going to say you can get a divorce. That's never a legitimate option. The, the closest thing that the church foresees, as I said, is the separation of the spouses with the bond remaining. But no Catholic bishop should should ever tell anybody <laughs> that getting a divorce is is the best solution. 
Um, okay. So good. I, I, good. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, 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 I know what you're talking about, yeah. and I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to speak too forcefully, but it, there's no consensus on that. I fall clearly in the camp where that's not necessary for people. Uh, Catholics. If Catholics are going to get a divorce, what they need to do, if Catholics, you know, reach that that point in their marriage where they think a divorce is the proper answer, then most tribunals in the United States, if not all tribunals in the United States, wait until a civil divorce is completed before they begin a process uh, to explore if the church, if the marriage could be declared null, and then that person could be free to marry in the church a second time. Now, Father, you mentioned, you know, that marriage sure. is where most of us are going to encounter canon law. So are there other things that where your average layperson is going to interact with? Well, I think that I, th- I think the average layperson has certainly, you know, given the sexual abuse uh, scandals, I think the average layperson has certainly seen the expression used in civil in in the media in for sure when when a priest is accused and convicted uh, of sexual abuse of a minor, uh, then we that's the sort of the only real glimpse that an average Catholic would have into the penal law of the church. The church has its own penal code, its own criminal code, if you yeah, will. Yeah. So, um, you know, they talk about laicization is the popular term. Well, that's not a technical term, but, it you know, it's it's a term that, that most Catholics would have heard before, whereas the technical term would be the dismissal from the clerical state. Again, and uh, you know, since the priesthood is uh, is a sacrament and sacramental realities, and so the priesthood, like baptism, leaves an indelible mark mm-hmm. on the soul, leaves an indelible character on the soul. Uh, when a priest is dismissed from the clerical state, he doesn't stop being a priest. So right. the sacramental reality remains. The clerical state is his juridical reality. Okay. that accompanies his priesthood and what the church says is well your priesthood is sacramental and that's you know that can't can never be that taken can't away. ever be taken away if it's validly celebrated that cannot ever be taken away your ability to function as a priest however that juridical state that's the the church says you can function as a priest that we can take away and those so rights and responsibilities. those rights and responsibilities those duties and obli- those obligations those rights and responsibilities of a priest we can remove those sure so you are no longer bound by those the sacramental reality remains and something that most most people wouldn't know is that even someone who a priest who's been quote unquote laicized in danger of death he is has the obligation to hear your confession so even the church the church has such great pastoral concern that even someone, even a man who, because of crimes that he's committed, is no longer allowed to function in everyday life as a, a Catholic priest, if he is in proximity of someone who is dying, he has the obligation to hear that person's confession to, and to impart absolution. Because of the responsibility. Because of the responsibility. Care for souls. Exactly. Because of the responsibility of care for souls. And because the the sacramental reality of the priesthood remains. It's just his ability to function as a priest that's been curtailed. So even in the penal law of the church, it has a totally different perspective than 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 civil penal law would. Yes, there is the notion of punishment, but more than the notion of punishment, there's the notion of correction. As any good parent knows, sometimes you have to punish your children to correct them. Yeah. Now, you are uh, beginning a new position in the Notre Dame Law School where you're actually going to be instructing civil lawyers. So, uh, and you mentioned even as you're talking about marriage, uh, in the case of, of divorce, the, the church's 
canon law and canon lawyers will wait for a civil sure. process to take place before they even begin the yeah. canonical process. So what is the relationship between, is there a relationship yeah. between civil and, and canon law? Well, they tend to be uh, parallel. Okay. So there are a few points where they where they inter where they interact. They don't, yeah. you know. So the intersection in the sense of of interacting together. So in property rights, so the church's property rights, obviously in uh, questions of marriage, where marriage is governed by the state. There are some states that just leaves uh, marriage entirely in the hands of religious communities. And there are others where marriage is governed both by religious law and by state law. But those are those are kind of the, so mostly mostly in uh, you know the church's property rights the church's you know the, especially a hot topic in the U.S. is the exercise of religious freedom, right. the ability or desire of of the state to curtail the, the freedom of exercise of the church. Obviously, that's a place where there's a, a stark contrast right. between civil and, and and church law because and this like especially we hear about in some of the cases like there are criminal cases where. A confession was recorded, exactly, or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, which is which is a huge issue as well. In our archdiocese, um, you know, we were the first archdiocese in the world to go through bankruptcy over the abuse. And what right. interesting, the bankruptcy judge actually looked at canon law to see how the church thought about property and, and things like exactly. that. And, and yeah, every yeah. parish had to compile a history. Not just of the parish, but of how you acquired the property when renovations were done. Who paid for it? I mean, it was it was it was fascinating, and all of that was taken into consideration by the judge before she made a decision about how the bankruptcy was going to go down. And see, that's a, that's a good example of the civil authorities taking into real consideration the church's own self understanding and the church's own way of organizing herself. So there's a real you know a real amount of a great respect shown on the part of that judge who just didn't say, okay, now I'm going to apply civil categories civil, regardless. Yeah. You know, I'm going to treat you the way I would treat IBM. Right. Um, yeah. You know, the archdiocese yeah. of Portland and IBM are going to play by the same rules. And that's not the case. Do you happen to know, so in our last few moments together, do you happen to know, is there um, a place where a layperson could go to just get a general overview or understanding if, if they were interested? Yeah, it's hard in a certain sense because canon law, like like civil law, is so technical. So there there are some there are some books that are written. Um, the Monsignor Larry Spiteri is a very uh, a popular author uh, as a priest of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. He's written a number of books that do a good job of explaining some aspects of canon law written uh, to explain uh, you know to a layperson. But unfortunately, get, given its technical nature, it's hard to have a good popular uh, sure. expression of of, of all the technicalities that are there. Awesome. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll we'll put a link on our Facebook page uh, to uh, one or two of these sure. books that uh, people can, uh, you know, maybe at least get a little more of a taste. Absolutely. But Father John Paul Kimes, thank you so much for coming to be with us again. Again, now you're officially a friend of the show. <laughs> That's right. It's a, it's, it's, a <laughs> gra- right. it's a great pleasure. That's and a- there are also rights and responsibilities thereunto appertaining. Apparently, I have to add to the Pop Top collection of that's the deacon. Right. I, think that's, I think that's a responsibility that's I've now right, accepted. Exactly. <laughs> well, you can always, folks, we would love to have you connect with us via our Facebook page. We are Living Stones Media. Just type that into your old Facebook search bar. You can download all the previous episodes of the show. I mean, this is show number 245. So lots and lots of quality content, plus uh, Deacon Harold. So, you know, all the good stuff you want uh, is at uh, materdeiradio.com. But uh, until we gather again next week, uh, Father Kimes, might we have a blessing? 
I just pray very simply through the intercession of St. Raymond of Penafort and all of the holy men and women who have dedicated their lives to service of the Church. Lord Jesus, we ask you to send your Spirit upon us and bless us now and all the days of our lives. O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you very much. We'll see you next week here on Living Stones. You've been listening to Living Stones with Ken Hellenius and Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Living Stones is produced at the studios of Modern Day Radio in Portland, Oregon. For more information about this show, go to moderndayradio.com. That's M A T E R D E I radio.com.